Hello, and welcome to episode 2 of Is It Shane Ritchie? The Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. My name's Carl Stewart, and I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen today, whoever and wherever you are. Thank you so much for all your feedback on the first episode. I've been genuinely surprised at just how many people have taken the time to contact me, not only with comments, but also some very useful advice. Uh, Some really constructive stuff too, so thank you all very much for that. And I have taken it all on board to try and improve things as we hopefully grow going forward. Thank you also to everyone who's taken the time to share our posts on Facebook and Twitter. For anyone unaware, you can find us on both websites under the name Conroy Pod. So that's www.facebook.com forward slash Conroy Pod and www.twitter.com forward slash Conroy Pod. Those are the two main places that you can interact with the show although you can also leave comments on the SoundCloud page where the episodes are hosted. If you do enjoy the show, please do continue to like, share, retweet and mention us to others. Help us grow and we can continue to provide you with more 100% original content every week. For those of you listening to the show for the first time, Please do go back and listen also to episode 1 for a little bit of background information as to what this show is really all about, and also to find out why this podcast is called Is It Shane Ritchie, despite having absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Shane Ritchie. I'm delighted to say that the first of my very special guests joins me this week. And he is someone who I've known now for nearly 25 years. Which is scary really, as those times are still so fresh in the memory that they really could have been yesterday. My guest this week has a wide range of experience within the wrestling business. And is someone who I know you'll absolutely love listening to. And that interview will be coming up a little bit later on the show. Before that, however, it's time for the first of our regular features. Short Stories Yes, it's time, once again, for Short Stories. Again, for any new listeners, this is a feature which was introduced in Episode 1. This section of the show focuses on my experiences in wrestling with the wonderfully eccentric MC of many years' experience, Mr John Short. Again, for a little bit of background, please do go back and listen to episode 1, as that explains a little bit more about who John is, and why he is my all-time favourite person to have travelled with in wrestling. Our short story this week comes from another trip to Scotland, this time in June 2004. Joining us in the car on this occasion was CSF promoter The Eliminator, Stu Natt. Our eventual destination on this trip was Forfa, near Dundee. But along the way we were breaking the journey in Presswick in Ayrshire and staying overnight so that two of the crew, Justin Richards and Tex Benedict, could be picked up from Presswick Airport in the morning by John 
and taken up to Forfa along with Stu. Meanwhile, I would make my way up to Glasgow to travel with the ring van. As I mentioned last time, one of John's great loves in life is Speedway. And as I also mentioned last time, if there is ever the possibility, for whatever reason, of John potentially not getting to a Speedway meeting that he's planned to attend, with plans having gone awry, he can get incredibly tetchy. And a tetchy, annoyed, sulky John Short can make for some amazing entertainment, especially on a long road trip with only a cassette of the history of Bristol Speedway recorded from BBC Radio Bristol to listen to. And yes, we did actually have to endure that on one particular trip. One of the reasons that there was no other form of audio entertainment in the car is that John had certain restrictions as to what was allowed and what wasn't allowed to be played. He always used to say prior to a trip that he didn't mind us bringing music and he also didn't mind what we listened to, just as long as there was no heavy metal. Okay, fine. Except that John's definition of heavy metal, as it turned out, seemed to be anything recorded after 1950. On one particular trip, early on in my days of travelling with John, we stopped at the services, so I went into the shop and bought a couple of compilation tapes. And yes, I know I'm dating myself with references to tapes. Something like the greatest pop and rock ballads of the 80s, or something along them lines. We got moving again, I put the first tape in, and as soon as the first track started playing, John was straight on it. I said no heavy metal. It's not heavy metal. It's nothing like heavy metal. Well, it's what I call heavy metal. Brilliant. Glad I didn't just waste a tenner on that then. Cheers, John. I'm still none the wiser to this day as to in what universe Take My Breath Away by Berlin would ever be considered heavy metal. But never mind, we'll just stick the greatest hits of Acker Bilk back on again then. Going back to the trip in question in 2004, the fact that we were travelling up the day before and staying overnight gave John the opportunity once we got there to head off to a speedway meeting in Edinburgh that evening. On this occasion I was late getting to the meeting point at Bromsgrove train station because my original train from Birmingham New Street had been cancelled. The next one wasn't for another hour, so I phoned John with the news from the station and he was less than pleased to put it mildly because of his speedway plans potentially being thrown into jeopardy. I got the next train which ran on time and as soon as I got off the train in Bromsgrove, I was met immediately on the platform by John, who was already in a foul mood. I was met not with, hello Carl, how are you, nice to see you. Instead, I was met with, let's go. Stu's gone back to the car in disgust. Yeah, nice to see you too, John. In reality, as I found out a little bit later on, Stu had actually gone back to the car to look at a martial arts shop. But John wasn't about to let a stupid thing like reality get in the way of him having a good old sulk. For several hours. After trying in vain to explain to John that I might have been fat, but that I wasn't actually the fat controller, 
and therefore couldn't influence trains being cancelled, we set off on our merry way. Well, I say that. Me and Natty set off on our merry way. John, meanwhile, was still incredibly tetchy and remained so for the entire rest of the journey. He was moaning away like anything, repeating again and again and again and again that he would probably have to cancel his plans for the evening. Although this was increasingly annoying, the more time that passed, the way he was moaning like a sulky teenager also made it somewhat entertaining too, which didn't really help the situation, or John's mood, given that me and Natty started laughing at him every time he started moaning. Eventually we made a stop at the Lake District services, not far from Carlisle, where we were given strict instructions by John to be back at the car in no more than 15 minutes because we were running late, as if we didn't already fucking know that by this point. Fair enough though, so... Off me and Natty went into the services after John had again shouted NO MORE THAN 15 MINUTES at 15 million decibels as we were walking across the car park. We went in, went to the toilet, had a quick look round the shop, stocked up on food and drink since we probably wouldn't be stopping again until we got to Presswick, and were promptly back at the car 10 minutes after we'd left. We waited by the car for John, and waited, and waited, and waited, until John eventually came back to the car a full 25 minutes after we'd got back, so 35 minutes in total from when we'd first stopped. After he put his food from the farm shop away, which is where he'd been for 35 minutes, we then got back in the car and started off up the road again at which point he started fucking moaning about being late again. We were about ready to throttle him by this point, but things would get even worse as we carried along, and his mood would get much, much darker before we finally arrived. We carried on and eventually got to the turning for the A road to head across towards Presswick. John was now getting annoyed by anything and everything he possibly could. Even coming out with the line, I don't think much of this road at all. His stroppiness wasn't really helped much by my response of, Will you fucking make one then? Which resulted in a somewhat tense, but believe me, at that point greatly appreciated, silence of about ten minutes. Except for the muffled laughter coming from the back seat, that is. Which only made John fume even more. The talk started picking up again when we got a little bit further along the road and made it to the outskirts of Prestwick. I should point out at this stage that I had printed step-by-step directions to the B&B we were staying in with me, which had every stage of the journey in minute detail and which would have got us there within minutes of arriving in Prestwick. John being John, however, had other ideas and we were soon involved in a heated debate about whether to follow my step-by-step directions and carry on along the road we were already on, or whether to turn back and take a turning John had spotted two miles back up the road, which his fucking spidey senses told him we should have been on instead. 
You can probably already guess which option won, and we were soon hopelessly lost, driving in and around Presswick, not a huge place, for approximately 45 minutes, looking for the B&B I had step-by-step directions to, with John all the while still fucking moaning about us being late. After doing approximately 17 laps of Prestwick, we eventually stumbled upon a sign we'd seen on the way in, just before John had taken us off on his fucking magical mystery tour. Hooray! We're back on track, we thought. No. As John proceeded to do exactly the same thing he'd done 45 minutes earlier, and turned the car around to head in the opposite direction again. After a lot of swearing and hysterical laughter from Natty and me, we finally managed to convince John to turn back around again and head back where we'd just been. I was then finally able to tell John where to go, step by step, as per the original plan. Which worked for about 30 seconds, before he decided to completely ignore me and take the wrong turning. Then, fucking blaming me for my directions being wrong, when we got lost again. Dickhead. So once again we were driving round and round Presswick in circles, again looking for something we recognised to at least try and get us back moving in the right direction. John was again getting rattier and rattier at this point, as he thought he wouldn't be able to make his speedway in Edinburgh. We then stumbled across a sign for the seafront we'd seen earlier, at which point John, in his rattiest, most fed-up, sulky teenager voice, said, Oh great, the seafront. That's all we need. Yeah, that pesky seafront, eh, John? Foils us every time. So we continued on our merry way around Presswick, and finally, finally, found the elusive bed and breakfast. Success! It had been a long old trek, but we'd eventually got there and we could now get checked in, dump our stuff, and just relax for the evening. No. As I'm sure you'll know, if you've stayed in a few B&Bs and guest houses, some of them have forecourts outside in which you're allowed to park while you're staying there. John started to turn the car to drive into the aforementioned forecourt, but things then hit yet another snag. As we were turning, John saw that the road outside the forecourt, the road we'd been driving down to get there, the main road, had double yellow lines on, so decided in his infinite wisdom and decades of driving experience at that point, that he wasn't allowed to drive over the double yellow lines on the main road in order to get into the forecourt of the bed and breakfast. This was starting to get beyond belief now, as we frantically tried to explain to John that, sure, he wasn't allowed to park on the double yellow lines, but he was allowed to drive over them for a duration of approximately two seconds, in order to get into the forecourt where a number of cars were already parked. But, you guessed it, John was having none of it. So, off we drove again, away from the B&B we'd just spent so long trying to find, to now try and find a nearby street without any parking restrictions. 
and sure enough there was nowhere anywhere nearby that allowed parking. The ironic thing yet again being that John, who had just spent the previous however many hours moaning about being late, had by himself added at least an hour and a half to that time by this stage. And now here he was, pissing about, driving up and down the length of Prestwick, looking for a parking spot, when he could have already been on his way to the speedway had he just driven into the guest house's fucking forecourt. Which, ironically enough, as we continued to drive round and round, seemed to be about the only place within miles he could have actually parked. We finally ended up parked several streets away and set about carting all of our luggage from the car to the B&B. All the time, John constantly reiterating that if it was alright with us, he would just check in quickly, dump his stuff and then head straight off to try and get to Edinburgh in time for the speedway. Somewhat understandably by this point, I think, we frankly couldn't wait to get rid of him and said that was absolutely fine by us. So we finally got to the B&B and we actually made it to the point of going in the door this time and started getting checked in. At which point John, who was in a hurry to get away remember, proceeded to spend the next 40 minutes talking to the owner of the B&B about nearby theatres, Scottish performance artists that never travelled south and various other assorted shite. But even that still wasn't the most unbelievable thing that John did that day. The next part of this story is, frankly, so unbelievable you might think that I'm making it up. In fact, if I hadn't seen this with my own eyes, I wouldn't believe it if someone else had told me about it. This is 100% completely and utterly true. Possibly a first in wrestling. And I can still remember it now as clearly as the day it happened 16 years ago. That's how indelibly etched it is into my mind forever. To set the scene so you can fully comprehend just how utterly baffling this is. This was a pretty small B&B. There was one landing of rooms up the stairs with four rooms along it. At one end of the landing there was the twin room that me and Natty were sharing. And then going along the landing there was the bathroom then a family room, then at the other end of the landing, directly opposite our room, was the single room John was staying in. Seemingly unable to comprehend how small this place actually was, and how completely impossible it would be to get lost, John proceeded to ask the bemused owner for step-by-step -step instructions on how to get to his room from coming in the front door. Just to clarify, incidentally, that as you came in the front door, straight in front of you was a hallway, which led to the owner's private quarters. And just to the right of that was a set of stairs. Or to put it another way, the only way you could go was straight up the only set of stairs. John took out a business card and wrote the instructions down and proceeded to read them back to the owner out loud. Okay, come in the door, turn slightly right and go up the stairs, then turn left 
not right, left, and walk along the landing, keep going right to the end, then the room is at the end of the landing, next to the wardrobe. We were absolutely gobsmacked by this point, and had to just retreat to our room to try and recover at least some sense of sanity after the previous however many hours. John went and dumped his luggage in his room, which he found, by the way, and finally fucked off to his speedway. After recovering for a bit, me and Natty then headed out to find a local pub. We next saw John the following morning at breakfast, and asked him if he'd managed to make it to Edinburgh in time for the speedway. Oh yeah, I made it in plenty of time. Tosser. More travel-related mayhem ensued the following day as well, as John took Natty, Justin and Tex up to the show in Forfa. I deliberately told John not to go up via Edinburgh, as there was work being done on the Forth Road Bridge at the time, which would likely result in them being delayed for quite a considerable time. I told him to instead go up via Glasgow and then pick up the A9 going past Stirling and Perth. I think you can probably already guess by now what happened, and I subsequently received several messages from John's fed-up passengers saying that they'd been stuck in traffic barely moving for the best part of two hours, and no one was happy. Do you ever get the feeling that people just deliberately set out to piss you off sometimes? So that was another one of the hundreds of trips I've made with John over the years. Again, I do have to point out that, especially for the benefit of anyone who didn't hear me say this last week, although I will, well, quite often actually, talk about John in these stories in less than flattering terms, he's actually somebody that I think the world of. He's a friend, and has been for a long time, not only of mine, but of my family as well. I tell these stories more to celebrate and share his wonderful eccentricities with people, rather than to knock the guy. Well, mostly anyway. So that's short stories for this week. Next week I'm going to deviate a little bit from telling road stories involving John, and instead give you a tale about a mysterious place called Arnbog, a promoter who owed John money, and one of the funniest phone calls I've ever been privileged to sit in on. But again, more about that next week. And now, we have some shameless plugs for you. But do stay tuned, because after that, it'll be time for our very first guest, as we bring you part one of our exclusive interview with none other than the twisted genius, Dean Ayas. Don't go away. I know you're going to dig this. Seconds Away, It's Night Time is run by former wrestler Stevie Knight and his longtime associate Richard Youngy Young, who have both been friends of mine for a long time now. The show features interviews with many of the top stars from the glory days of British wrestling, as well as with some modern day wrestlers, and is really, really well worth a listen. You can find them at www.twitter.com forward slash secondsawaypod. And the other podcast I'd like to give a shout to at this time is Because WCW. 
run by the twisted genius Dean Ayas and his co-host Liam Happ. Their show focuses on reviewing WCW pay-per-views and TV shows and is also really, really well worth a listen. You can find them at www.twitter.com forward slash because WCW. Definitely do check out those two fantastic shows. You will absolutely love them. My guest this week is a man who has worn many different hats during his time in professional wrestling and various other forms of headgear too. He's been a ringside manager, a booker, a commentator, a very occasional wrestler and various other things. But when I first met him, he was the resident MC or ring announcer for Hamlock Wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, he is none other than the Twisted Genius and Terry Funk's favourite one-time manager. Dean Ayers. Dean. <laughs> Hello, Carl. How are you doing? Hello. Thank you for agreeing to come on Shane Ritchie, my friend. Can I just clear up that I, I haven't literally come on Shane Ritchie? That would be... Uh, well, I thought I'd just sort of try and take advantage of your long-time Brighton residence and um, <laughs> subsequent um, acquired skills. <laughs> It's, it's a good it's a good point well made but um i am no i'm very i'm very good all things considered i think i'm in week number eight of lockdown because i i started before it became fashionable as i'm diabetic so um so yes it's um it, it is as i as i say on my own podcast because wcw get the plug in there quickly this is a a golden age for podcasting because everyone's Indeed. stuck at home with fuck all else to do yes absolutely I, I first met you nearly 25 years ago now, which is scary, really, you yes. know, because those, um, those times, you know, seem so fresh in the memory still that, um, you know, it could have been yesterday, frankly. Well, I, I was listening to the first episode of this podcast, and, and you mentioned that you knew me from before um, your Hammerlock debut, and I'd I had forgotten about that until you mentioned it, but yeah, we we knew each other from from tape trading, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you had, and I think it was probably through my friend Darren Levy that we we, we came to this point. Um, you had a tape of something, whether it be an ECW show or a Japanese show, or something that my regular contacts uh, didn't have, and I got in touch, and we we, we kind of went from there. Mm. And and then um, yeah, I seem to remember because it was it was when I was uh, when I was at university. So that had been like start my first year at university would have been like late ninety five, early ninety six. And I think yeah, you that... debuted in ninety six, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, May yeah. ninety six. Um, and I first met you in person at the infamous Hamelot Goes Hardcore show in Sittingbourne, ah. which, which would have been March nineteen ninety six. Yes, the uh, the show we did at the gym, the, the Hamlet right. gym in front of a handful of people. Yes. Um, and as, as I recall, you'd not long been chokeslammed by a giant of a man named Titan. Yes. And for some reason, you were also covered in egg yolk. Yeah, I seem to remember someone had brought a box of eggs to use as a weapon and, and one of them got chucked on me at the end. Yes, I forgot about that. I think it was um, Ollie Hurley, who's uh, yes, since well published be. a wrestling book, um, who, who did that. Um, whereas um, the bloke who was Titan has had a, uh, a more 
colourful time of it, and I believe he's yeah. uh, yes, I believe he's somewhere <laughs> on the European continent at um, I was going to say at Her Majesty's pleasure, but it would be uh, where, wherever uh, whoever rules the country that he's in. Uh, he's but, currently yes. apparently he's currently self isolating in on the island of Corsica, I believe. <laughs> That was the kayfabe uh, hometown I gave him until until he told me not to do it anymore. Hmm. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> As you would. As you would. Before we get into all of that, though, and talk Hammerlock, let's, let's talk about your early days as a wrestling fan. Mm-hmm. Um, when did wrestling first appear on a young Dean's radar? And what was it you were watching in those early days? Well, I'm... I'm a bit rubbish in that respect, in that my my dad was and still is a wrestling fan. Um, I mean, I, I actually I went round I went round to um, drop some shopping off to him yesterday, and he, he actually the day we're recording this, he, he turns eighty-one. Ah. Um, so happy birthday to him! But yes, um, indeed. When I um when I dropped the sh- shopping round to him, he was telling me about um this wrestling he saw last night and it was, uh, it was um, AEW dynamite that he'd been, he'd found on ITV. <laughs> um, so he still watches a bit to this day, but so I, I, I just remember it, it was one of those things for me that was always, it was always there. I, I just always remember the wrestling being on, on, you know, four o'clock on the Saturday afternoon, the world of sport era in the early eighties. Yeah. Um, and I did actually recently track, down what i believe was the first live show i ever went to um uh-huh. there's a there's a guy um who goes by the name of ernest crabtree on um twitter who is yes a, i've, I've british, seen his, his yes, postings yeah um a british historian he actually lives not too far away from me down on the south coast here and um and i because i told him about I remember. I actually, what I remembered from that was that the was the poster because I remember I took. I got. A, I'd quite often when I went to shows as a little kid, we'd we'd try and grab a poster. We'd speak to like the manager of the venue or something, and and I described the poster and he tracked down the card and I think we worked out it was like August 1981, wow. which um, would have made me five, um, <laughs> and I do remember it was a big daddy tag and that on the opposite side of the ring was the Mississippi Mauler, uh, Big Jim Harris, who then became um, much better known, of course, as Kamala. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I just always remember wrestling being on, and I always remember being kind of transfixed by it. Um, And... As I got older, as I became a, a teenager, I'd still I'd still go to shows. Um, I became good friends with someone at school who was also a wrestling fan and someone I'm still good friends with to this day. Um, and at that point, we were kind of trying to find out how to get into the wrestling business because we we didn't really know what we wanted to do or how to do it, but we, we were interested in it. And and you know that point in the um, sort of the late '80s, early '90s, every door was being shut in your face. You know, it was very much a closed shop, and nobody wanted to to um, to let you know. But but yeah, I just I just remember it being something that that fascinated me, and even when um, after watching one too many Big Daddy matches, I figured out it was a work. Um, I have a very a very fond memory as a as a little kid, and I must have been about I don't know seven or eight at the time. 
where um, we we were in that they had a, a match or a show at the um, the Brighton Dome, um, and the Brighton Dome is a venue that backs onto the gardens of the Royal Pavilion, this massive like Indian style palace in Brighton. And I do I remember me and my dad were walking along the pal the, the Pavilion Gardens, and we saw um, Mal Kirk, King Kong Kirk, sitting on the bench. And my dad was like, "Oh, come, go over and you know, let's go and say hello to him." And and I was I was terrified because you know I'd seen this guy on the TV, 22, 24 stone, whatever he was, shaven-headed rugby player, he looked fearsome. And and um, my dad kind of led the way. And and Mal Kirk, I mean, he he was a father himself. He immediately figured out, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I can tell now that he immediately figured out what was going on. And 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 he was the nicest man you could you could ask to me he was so nice and he talked to me and i think he gave me his autograph and um and he'd got he i think he was he was either i don't think he was fighting big daddy i think he i think he had like a tv match with big daddy coming up and um i rather prophetically said to him big daddy's going to put you in hospital which was uh something <laughs> that happened that, yeah, I, I feel a bit un, a bit uncomfortable thinking about now, but um, you might you might end up um, having been the world's greatest psychic. Quite possibly, yeah. Um, but but what I always remember, and it's something that I actually still kind of carry with me to this day, was that even though he had been so nice to me um, before the show, the moment he stepped through that curtain, the moment he came out. And the crowd were booing him, and he was in his character. He did it so well that I was immediately booing him, and I immediately forgot about the nice Mal Kirk that I'd seen earlier, and was booing King Kong Kirk. And you know that is something that, that sticks in my head to this day. Yeah, that's that, that's amazing. I mean, to you know to have your first live show that that early on, um, and it, it's funny because. Um, I remember the first live show I went to. I mean, my my first live show was much, much later than that. I mean, we're talking probably maybe 1992. Oh, right, okay. And um, by by that stage, I had already been to a WWF show in Birmingham at the NEC. And going from watching that WWF show from miles back and seeing the ring, you know, a, a little dot in the middle of the arena, to... Going to a British show where everything was so much closer, you could actually see the ring. You could practically touch the ring from where you were. Mm. And when people landed on the ring, you actually felt them land mm. rather yeah. than you just um, compared to this WWF show. Um, did I say WWE before? I can't remember now which one you oh, said. To be honest, fuck, but... fuck it. Anyway, <laughs> WWF going from, I mean, comparing it to, to that where it was kind of more like watching a play um, because of how far away everything was and so disconnected if you like going from that to this sort of all action right up close you know people landing outside the ring and you feeling the floor moving as they landed you know watching the sweat being knocked off people and yeah you know it it absolutely threw me for a loop and I I really fell in love with that yeah, I, and you you feel so much more part of the show because you are yeah. that close up, and as you say, you can feel it. I mean, I I watch. Um, I'm a big fan of comedy. I watch a lot of comedy. I often go um, to the Edinburgh 
fringe. I mean, it was meant to go this year, but that's, that's now not happening because of um, coronavirus. But I always prefer going to see people at venues that hold like 100 or 200 people than seeing someone at an arena that holds 20,000 people because it's the same thing you lose that degree of intimacy and you lose that connection with the with the performer I think yeah I I think so too um yeah I mean that's um I mean looking back the 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 shows I went to I I went to the spa center in Leamington that was my local hall Mm -hmm. um it wasn't actually the closest hall to me but my grandparents lived in Leamington and I would, I would sort of time my visits to them with whenever the shows were on. So, you know, <laughs> right. And we, we had, I mean, we, we, we had all kinds of stuff. I mean, we probably had in the time that I went to shows there, we probably had, I don't know, probably seven or eight different promoters. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a hall that, you know, really, you didn't know what you were going to get from one show to the next. Right. Um, I mean, a lot of the shows were all-star, but then you, you might turn up the next time and it would be, I, I think we probably even got some of the, the dying days of the crab trees. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you might turn up and the next time it'd be Klondike Jake. And then right. you, might, you might turn up the next time and there'd be about half the people there. Um, you might turn up the next time and it would be Banger Walsh putting on a show or you know, next time it'd be back to all star and then it'd be someone else. And so we got a real mixture of people. Okay. Um, yeah. I think with, um, I think with me, it was when I, it was always Dale Martin. Um, yeah. and, and then, um, then we had from 1987 was when premier promotions, John Fremantle started promoting, um, so I think it kind of transitioned from from joint to premiere with a few a few um, no pun intended joint shows between the two because I <laughs> I remember um, I remember David Boy Smith coming to Worthing um, just before he went back to the WWF in '94 time I think yeah so um so yeah my childhood was was joint my sort of adolescence was um was premiere and and then you know many years later i i got to um i got to work and i still do work for premiere promotions and i've actually you know performed in pretty much all of the venues that i used to watch wrestling at myself which is kind of weird yeah that was the uh the, the one i you know I, I kind of missed out on because i i always wanted to go and wrestle at the spa center in leamington and I, I never quite made it i got quite close one time but then for whatever reason it fell through so yeah that was a one of the bucket list that i i kind of missed so in those in those early days of watching wrestling um do you remember what it was that that kind of drew you in you know what what were you a fan of within wrestling um at that time, it would have been the the larger than life action and characters. So, yeah. um, Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks, obviously huge characters. Um, still to this day, I find watching Giant Haystacks matches, so there's a strange transfixing quality to it because um, I, I, I've, I, I've said this about like how to book big super heavyweights the the whole thing with the giant haystacks match was it was never obviously a technical classic 
but you watch that match kind of in fear or you know, through your fingers because you knew that if the baby face got knocked down flat on their back, you'd be kind of willing them and wishing them to get straight up because if yeah. Haystacks hit that big elbow, that was it. Nobody got up from it ever. But, yeah. And that's, that's how to sell a finisher. And so I suppose much like Jake the Snake and the DDT, where you know, a lot of his match centers around trying to use that move because he knows no one's going to get up from it. It was the same thing. So there's this this fear of haystacks. And I, I remember my um, my mum telling me that when I was, again, a little boy in the early 80s, and I first I, we were sitting, I think, front row, and giant haystacks was on the bill, and he walked past us, and I was absolutely terrified and like just just flung myself at my mum and put my head in her lap and didn't want to look <laughs> at him. And, it, and that's the exact reaction you want. So there's pe- people like that. Rollable Rocco, I absolutely loved. And I have, um, I have a very fond memory of seeing him on a live show at the Dome in Brighton. And the ring was on a stage there. Um, and he would be a lot more wild than he was on the TV for obvious reasons. Um, yeah. And... You know, it was things like he chucks his opponent. I can't remember who his opponent was, but he chucks his opponent out of the ring and smacked his head into the timekeeper's table and hit him over the head with a bell and stabbed him in the eye with the timekeeper's pen and then ran his head into the wings of the stage <laughs> and wrapped the wrapped the, the curtain cord around his neck. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this is amazing. You never see this on the TV. So... Um, so what? Well, yeah, it was the big characters. I remember. Um, do you remember a guy wrestling Rasputin, who was oh, yeah, uh, Johnny Howard, long, long silver hair and a beard? And I remember there was a guy at, um, at Hove Town Hall. It was a premier promotion show, and he was giving Rasputin was on the mic, and and this punter was giving him lip. I don't know what he was saying, but basically Rasputin just threw the microphone and it hit this guy straight on the forehead. <laughs> and you know, if you did that now, you'd get sued. But in those days, nothing happened. The bloke just sort of picked himself up and, and sheepishly walked off again. Um, so yeah, I didn't really have much time for the, you know, the technical blue eyes wrestling which was what my dad liked mm-hmm. um but obviously yeah i was a little kid I, I i wouldn't have but um but it was yeah it was always the it was always the the larger than life characters the colorful costumes and i think that's that's the whole thing for me with with wrestling is is that i always say to people like if they're being a, a manager um you know wear something that you would not wear walking down the street or go you wouldn't go into the pub dressed it as dressed in that so you know when i'm i'm managing at premier i've got um an arabic headdress on and and a jacket with twisted genius on the back in sequins which so, yeah, i certainly wouldn't be doing my weekly shopping in that although um, in, in fairness uh, living in brighton you probably wouldn't stick out no, I mean, if there's anywhere in the country I could get away with that, it probably would be frightened, yeah. But and it it reminds me of something that um that Andre Baker, or obviously was our both of our our mentors in that respect at Hamelock, yes. drummed, drummed into me, which was uh, I remember him saying if if people wanted to see their next door neighbour have a fight, they'd go to the pub and not the wrestling. So therefore, yeah. you want to you want to be different, you want to look larger than life, and and that's the other beauty of wrestling. You know, as a as a heel, and I'm sure you've had this being a, a, a heel for most of your wrestling career that 
you can, you know, someone someone in the crowd shouts something at you, and you can shout the most vile abuse back at them. That <laughs> if you did that in, you know, again, if someone said that to you in in the supermarket, and you responded, you know, shut your face, you fat ugly cow, or something, you would. There would probably be a situation kicking off, whereas, you know, in in wrestling, I think the fans always see it as a bit of a badge of honour to be insulted by a heel personally. Well, um, I was a little bit more creative, if you like. Um, I think my my favourite line that I ever used with somebody was, "Don't talk to me like that. I I could have been your father. I would have been too if I hadn't run out of change." <laughs> One one of the lines I've I've used on people before when I'm like cutting a promo and they're interrupting me, I'll say, "Will you stop interrupting me? I'm here. I'm trying to do my job. I don't come and interrupt you when you're cleaning the toilets at Tesco. So please don't interrupt me." <laughs> and that normally shuts them up. Yeah. Well, that would that would hit a nerve as well. I'd imagine, you know. <laughs> but but yeah, it's, that's what I mean. It is is it's the that kind of. Um, half real half fantasy world that that we inhabit in wrestling where you can get away with things you would not get away with anywhere else it's it's bizarre really when you think that uh, people pretty much pay to come along and get insulted yeah yeah and it's wonderfully therapeutic as well because <laughs> you know I, I i have a i have a day job i mean most people in in British wrestling you know, over the years have had day jobs. And, um, you know, if I've had a show at the weekend and I've had a terrible week, then, you know, I, I can envisage <laughs> that all the people who have annoyed me or pissed me off throughout the week are sitting in that audience and, and you get to, you get to just get, get it out of your system. So it is a very good form of therapy as well. Um, I'm going to have to try that one. I mean, as you know, I am a therapist, so, yes. um, I, I think I might have to adopt something with that kind of approach. It, um, it'd be entertaining, at least. <laughs> Definitely. So let's go on to talking about Hamelot now. Um, yeah. I mean, how did you how did you first become aware of Hamelot? Um, I had um, I'd seen. I think I'd seen them on the the Big Breakfast. They'd got uh, which was at the time was a um, morning TV show. All the, the morning TV shows that in the sort of the early '90s and the '80s had always been very kind of staid and very newsy. Yeah. And this was um, a much livelier show. It had celebrity guests, and it was filmed in a proper house with a prop, and it had a garden, and they had a wrestling ring set up in the garden. And I, I don't think I, I paid that much attention to it for whatever reason. It might have been I was just about to leave for college or school or whatever but um i was um i was a tape trader at the time and um one of my regular customers was um a kid who was a couple of years younger than me from north london from islington um called alex um who went on to become alex shane and he said did you see the, the you know, did you see that on the big breakfast and I, I vaguely knew of it and I, I and he basically said that apparently they were offering free trial training sessions um and he'd phoned up andre and um he'd said um yeah yeah, yeah we could come he could come down or whatever the date was and did i want to come um so i was like yeah why not so um 
me and um, my aforementioned school friend um, called Mark, um, we got the train from Brighton down to Folkestone. And Alex got the train from London with um, a friend of his called Adam, who went on to become um, Muscles Mansfield from, uh, from the Transatlantic Wrestling Challenge. Um, years later, I found out that, um, that the reason Alex asked us to go is because his dad wouldn't let him go on his own. So in a roundabout way, me and uh, Adam are responsible for Alex Shane. So sorry about that, folks. Um, but um, but basically, um, we had this fight. I think we were in the ring for about five hours doing this training session with Andre. And um, he kept saying to us, take a break come out of the ring for a bit and we were so excited to be in the ring we just didn't want to leave it um and we we're just doing doing all the you know we, we, he showed us you know the lock up and running the ropes and taking bumps and all the basic stuff that you would learn um and the thing with again you you'll know this carl as a as a, a wrestler that the doing the shows is the easy bit the training is the hard bit on because you're doing you know the same bump over and over again where you only yes. do it once on a show um so didn't think anything of it you know had a had a, got home had a shower next morning i woke up and it was like oh my god i could not move i couldn't i could not move i could not walk everything hurt um and i'm thinking jesus christ is this what it's like and yeah, I can I can very much relate to that one. I can definitely relate to that. Um, and so, yeah, whenever anyone asks me from outside the business, asks me the classic, is it fake question? I, I, I tell them things like this because, yeah, I remember I picked up the phone to, to Martin. I'm sure I must have phoned Alex as well. And all of us were feeling the same way. <laughs> and um, I mean, I'm, I've, I've never been the most sporting or active of people. And I was like, no, this, this isn't for me. Um, I'll, I'll do something else or I'll try. I, I was still like, you know, in contact with Alex. And I was still in contact with, with those people. And I just, I, I remember that basically a few months later, um because this was all 93 and i think that was like the summer of 93 and by the end of 93 november time andre wanted to do um a show a friends and family show at the gym um just to give people an experience of doing a match in front of an audience because yeah if something goes wrong you you can't just stop and do it again um and he asked me if i would like to um to be their ring announcer um for the show so i was like yeah great yeah it was, a, it was a way of keeping um keeping in touch and keeping involved um and it, it went from there so really then andre started running shows in proper halls i remember in um spring or summer of 1994 he ran his first show at the lees cliff hall which obviously as you mentioned last week was the venue you made your debut in yeah absolutely. um and that became our one of our venues i mean that had been a, a venue for years that um joint and then dixon had run so I, I don't know how andre had managed to get this this venue but with the benefit of hindsight you know over the years he seemed to acquire these venues from other promoters somehow um, I don't know if it was he undercut them or, or, or what, but I don't think it made Hamlock very popular with other promoters at the time. Well, um, I mean, let's let's get into that a little bit, because I I mentioned last week um, that Andre did come in for some stick from people in the job. 
you know, for being really the first one to start breaking down these barriers where you mentioned earlier on, it had been a completely closed shop up until that point. Yes. You know, there, there was there was absolutely no way in. Yeah. Um, let's let, let's talk a bit about that. I mean, do you know what Andre's motivation was for starting Hammerlock in the first place? Yeah, um, he had tried to get bookings with um, All Star with Joint, um, and for whatever reason, I never really found out why. But he he was never really booked that much, and whether it was that the, you know the style he wanted to work wasn't favoured by the other people, or he wasn't they didn't think he was very good, or I I don't know what. I mean, all I know is. You know, when I watched Andre work, I was watching what I thought was a, a master at work, both in the wrestling and the and the the character. But um, so he he was just quite bitter at like the establishment of, mm. of wrestling. Um, and so he'd always um, he'd always slag off the established stars of the time. And um, I mean, when I listened to other old school wrestlers talking about people that inspired them and people that um they thought were great a lot of these are the people that that andre would would criticize and i think you know with hindsight now it was probably out of out of a place of a bit of bitterness a bit of a grudge whatever it might be so so basically um his motivation from what i understood was well if if you're not gonna if you're not gonna let me play ball i'm gonna get my own ball and start my own game and that's where he then um, started the training school, opened the doors up to the public. And, and this was, yeah, as, as you say, it was 92, 93 time. And it was the first ever training school that made itself publicly known. I mean, um, Dale Martin had a wrestling gym and a training place in, in Brixton. And I'm, I'm sure there'd have been other places. And around about that time, you'd have had WAW starting up as well in Norwich. Yeah. But um, it was opening those doors up and I mean the you know the people that came through those doors back in those early days uh, as well as as Alex Shane you had Justin Richards you had um Doug Williams you had John Ryan um Jody Fleisch George Castano Johnny Storm um Muscles Mansford as I said there they, you know there are so many people who are, have you know who are themselves now the the respected veterans of British wrestling and um you know whatever those people may individually think of Andre he gave them all their start and they they may not have ever been wrestlers if it wasn't for that well yeah absolutely I mean I I've said many times that I I've never forgotten where I started you know um I will always be grateful to Andre for the the opportunity that he gave me yeah um and are you aware of any attempts that were made by the, I'm, I'm going to say the old school, um, the more traditional promoters mm. um, to sabotage Hamlock in them early days? No, um, I wasn't. Um, whether that was just because it was any problems were dealt with and we never heard about it, um, I don't know. But when you... When I think about you know the tricks I've heard of before, like you know posters being torn down, yeah, um, and you know calling up venues to say so and so hasn't got the right license, yeah, um, you know I can only imagine he had all the right licenses, 
and um yeah when we when we started bringing americans over which was very rare but we were the first people to really build a show around an import you know he would he would make sure he had the right paperwork he yeah he wouldn't allow himself to to you know take a shortcut that could fall victim to sabotage i do remember um like people sometimes were coming up to me after a show and oh we're we're friends with fit finley or we're friends with with steve regal or they'd just drop a name of someone else in and this was a terrible show and we're going to get you shut down and the first couple of times i heard it i was worried and i'd report it back to andre and then he was like oh they're you know it's just someone giving it the big giving it the bigger and just talking rubbish and yeah and after that i i i just nodded and walked walked off and didn't really you know didn't really let it affect me so so i didn't notice anything personally i mean i don't have great memories of seeing lots of posters um around but then i do remember um we'd get people handing out flyers in the street the day the day of the show or the day before yeah the show. i remember i remember doing that many times yeah um my one of my favorite jobs was when we went to my my favorite venue of all the places we went to was the winter gardens in margate absolutely <laughs> loved that venue it's a great hall the staff were really nice um everything was just great with that place and um one job that i would have in the afternoon of the show would be to wander up and down the beach um, nice sandy beach in Margate with a megaphone um, <laughs> telling people that the uh, the show was on while someone else quite often Mike White the referee or someone else would be dishing flyers out to people yeah. um, I was sorely tempted to um, just shout out there's a shark in the water please get to the winter gardens to congregate safely but <laughs> never, never followed that one through um, but yeah or we'd, or we'd drive we'd drive around margate's town center with me sticking my head out the window with the megaphone wrestling tonight 745 winter gardens or whatever it might have been so um so yeah that's that's how we did um publicity or like newspaper articles and advertising like that as well yeah i mean you you, you talk about the uh the megaphone there and that but that did make me chuckle because um I remember staying at Andre's house many times, and <laughs> you would have got the megaphone. Uh, you, you, you know, you know exactly what's coming. <laughs> yes. um, I remember being woken up by that fucking megaphone um, so many times. I can't even remember because it uh, had um, it had like tunes on it. As yes, well, it fucking it? did, didn't it? And there was one called Revile, as in you know, the French word for wake up, and it was some kind of like military camp thing. And yeah, and he would just um he would just play that yeah he'd creep down like in the early morning or or apparently it was when he did his summer camps as well he'd, he'd wake everyone up with that and scare yes. the shit out of them yes but, he had a he had a cruel a cruel sense of humor yes, it was funny it was funny so long as you weren't the if, basically if you were the victim it was terrifying if you weren't the victim it was absolutely hilarious yes um, and I and I was on both sides of those divides at different I, times. Yes, I think I think we both we 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 all were. I mean, th- that was one thing with Andres. You could you you would you know sometimes sometimes you'd be his favourite and then you'd fall out of favour and you know he'd definitely have his flavour of the month and and um, if you if you were his flavour of the month you could do no wrong and other times you could do no right. But um, well, I think it, he um, I think he always kind of liked me because I was you know quite 
and quiet and respectful. Um, but but also I scored some inadvertent brownie points with him the uh, the very first time I went to his house by completely pissing off Amanda, uh, which 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 he found hilarious. Um, she'd she'd gone to the trouble of making me a chicken curry, um, spent however long making it and. She gave it to me and I said, well, you know, what's what's in it? And she said, oh, it's, you know, chicken curry. And I said, oh, I'm a vegetarian. Um, so she just spent however long making this curry and then just had to stomp off to the kitchen to throw it in the bin straight away. And, <laughs> and, and Andre just found that hilarious. So I think he liked me for that reason as well. Fair enough. But, yeah, I can, uh, I can see him finding that amusing, yes. But uh, with, with that megaphone as well, he, he seemed to think he was captain harris from police academy um <laughs> and more than once i was woken up with uh, come on let's go move it move it move it um which which again as as you said you know if, if you're the victim of you, you you don't quite find so um so funny yeah i my my um my favorite memory i mean the, the that was one thing as well is you did not want to fall asleep because um, if you stayed at Andre's, usually you know, with one, there's a spare bed that one person might get. But um, generally speaking, you you slept sitting upright in an armchair. Um, pretty, pretty much, yeah. Or, or yeah. on the floor, in my case, with my uh, my hold all or my uh, my backpack as a as a pillow. As a pillow, yeah. Um, but you did not want to fall asleep before Andre went to bed because no. that, you, know, you left yourself wide open and people had their eyebrows shaved off. Um, people had um, shaving foam sprayed in their face and then woken up so that they'd wake up with a start and swallow a load of shaving foam. <laughs> um, but the, the best one of all was um, there was a guy, and again, I'm still in touch with him to this day, Steve Smith, who was one half of a tag team called the Folkestone Flyers. Yes. Um, so they were like, you know, local baby faces at the, the Leescliff Hall. And um, he fell asleep on, in an armchair in Andre's uh, front room. And um, Andre then got a permanent marker and wrote the word cunt across his forehead. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and Steve was asleep. So this this permanent marker had, you know, six, seven hours or so to oh. sink into his skin. And um, and he didn't, you know, didn't realize anything at all. And then he wakes up and everyone's good morning. And Andre's like morning and trying not to piss himself laughing. And um, it's only when Steve goes up to the bathroom to go for a piss and he looks himself in the mirror and he's like, what the fuck? And he's he is. And, and the other thing is, you know, he is a teenage baby face and this is in the era of your white meat clean cut baby faces and he was frantically scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing um this this permanent marker off and by the time the show um i think he like put a hat he managed to grab a, a hat or cap from someone to cover it up for while he got into the venue and he carried on scrubbing it there. And basically by the time, the time he got out for the show, he had a very a suspiciously red looking forehead, like some veteran <laughs> who's done too many blade jobs. And it was one of those things that if you knew it was there, you could just about see it. But if you didn't, you wouldn't have spotted it. And, um, yeah. And, and the thing is that I, I reconnected with Steve, um, about 20 years later, because um, 
I mean, yeah, he left. He well, I think I don't know who. I think he left Hamlet before I did. I can't remember now. But we went our separate ways, and he joined the army and went to Iraq and Afghanistan and places like that. And um, and we then reconnected on Facebook, and then we reconnect. We we saw each other. Uh, he came along to an IPW show I was emceeing at, and um, for like twenty years, he thought that me or Mike White were the people who'd written. Um, written that on his head, and he did not believe me um, that that it was it was Andre. And I think I I seem to remember that like, after the show, I rang Mike um, on my mobile, put him on speakerphone, and just said, "Who wrote cunt on Steve's head?" And he goes, uh, "Jay," which was Andre's nickname. And he yeah. goes, and um, he's like, "Oh, okay." So the fact that you know, uncorrob um. We, we hadn't collaborated at all. It's just that he told him the same as I told him. He finally believed us. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Going back to that, um, that first time that you went along to Hammerlock, um, yeah. I take it, you said, um, you said Folkestone. So I'm guessing it was probably the, uh, the infamous gym, which was on the edge of the cliff. Yes, it was a little kind of garage, literally perched on the edge of a cliff. And to go to the toilet, you walked, uh, as he always said, uh, left and left again, and it was you were pissing yeah. against the wall. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was that was a little bit before my time. I mean, when I first got to Hamlock, the training was at uh, No Limits in Ashford. Oh yeah. And, yeah, they, went, um, they were there for a few years, and then they went to um, uh, Martin Clark's place, the uh, East Street Sports Centre in. That's Brisbane. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, um, I think that must have been probably '96 that um, that they moved to um, to Sittingbourne. Probably, yeah, sounds about right. Because I remember training at No Limits, and I also remember training at Sugar Rays. Mm. So let's talk a little bit more about Andre, and then let, let's let's talk a little bit more about your role within Hammerlock and how that mm-hmm. how that changed over the years. You were with Hamelock for a long time, and you you must have got to know Andre pretty well, you know, probably yeah. as as well as anybody did at that time. Um, what was your relationship with Andre like over the years? Um, generally speaking, very very good. Yeah, um, started off as as just the just the MC, and um, he could see that I was interested in like the the workings of the show and and um just how things happened when they happened why they happened just putting putting a show together and um mike was was also um of the same sort of mindset and um being that we're the same sort of age as well i think he's a few months older than me we you know had good memories of the world of sport era as well as the early wwf um yeah, WWF in the UK, you know, that era. Yeah. Um, so we kind of you know crossed the divide. So he could talk to us about the old school guys and we'd know who they were and stuff. But um so so over time we started helping put the shows together and book the shows and run the shows with him. And that was sort of up Andre's street because you know, if he could delegate something to someone else, it meant he didn't have to do it. He was quite happy with that. I mean, <laughs> when yeah, with with the training school um you know he would often be behind his desk overseeing everything but then people like tyrone and justin would be doing the actual training with people yeah 
so um so yeah i mean there were there were lots of shows in the mid 90s so when i was sort of you know early we're early 20s that we were running and booking the whole shows ourselves obviously with andre overseeing everything yeah but the good thing was um and i always i had the same experience with with the knights actually he would let you make a mistake so that you could see what happened when you made that mistake right so a very simple thing but something that i still tell people to this day was we had a match um i don't think it was the opener but it was early it was in the first half of the show and um the we had a wrestler coming out who hadn't wrestled there before and he comes out and he was a baby face but he was quite nervous he was quite understated people didn't really know how to react to him so there wasn't much of a response and it was a bit of a damp squib and then his opponent came out or i've got a feeling it was phil powers who was a heel and everyone knew phil because they, they'd seen him several times before so they all start booing phil and andre said afterwards if you'd have done it the other way around, so you had yeah. the established wrestler come out first, everyone starts booing Phil, therefore they know that whoever is coming out next, that's got to be the baby face. Yeah. And then they'd, he would have got a much better response. That would have given him a lift, given him more confidence and so on. So, you know, there were little, little things like, like that, but he'd always, you know, he'd always tell you, oh, you know, let you make a mistake and then tell you afterwards, you know, ask you why did you do that or tell you what you what you did wrong um and i thought that was much better because you'd actually see what had happened because of what you had you had booked essentially yeah you would actually think about it rather than just be told and not necessarily yeah. understand why it was wrong exactly yeah and then you wouldn't you know so that that understated reaction for the baby face well i don't want that to happen again so i'll make sure i put them coming out the other the other way around yeah um and and also you know the the order you know the order of the matches on the show um to to bring people up and 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 take them down again and um it's it's something that um i always remember talking to a friend of mine that was a, a club dj in um in brighton um and i mean he, he went on to be, become quite well known around the world actually but um this was just when he was when he was doing local clubs and i remember i was chatting with him once and and we realized that there was a similarity because uh he said for his dj sets you you want to play tunes that will get everyone to get up to the dance floor but you don't want to be playing those tunes all the time because yeah. you want to have some songs that are a bit bit shit or a bit less less popular to clear the dance floor off because that a that gives people a bit of a breather so it means yeah. they're in the club longer but also it means that they've got a chance to go to the bar and you've got to let the bar make money and yeah. and it's similar with the with the wrestling show in that the way the americans have always booked their shows it's like the the least important match goes on first and it just works its way up like that Mm. the the traditional way for british shows which was like in the joint promotions time that i was a kid the main event would actually be on in the middle of the show it would either be yeah yeah, it'd either be directly before or directly after the interval and the reason for that was that if the show went long or if you had to get 
a, a last train or a last bus or whatever. And I've seen that happen plenty of times with, with yeah. FWA and 1PW shows where people have actually had to leave midway through or before the main event yeah. because they've got to get home. So at least by doing that, and it's similar with boxing as well, the main event will be in the middle and then you'll let the the young kids sweep up, as they'd call it. You know, they, the, the last match was a sort of a... Um, an, an understated sort of affair of you know two blue eyes or a, a young blue eye and a veteran heel or something, just to um just to make sure everyone saw the feature attraction. Yeah, absolutely. And you talking about the uh, I know it's it's a it's a phrase that you use on because WCW, but the art of the opener. Mm. Um, you you really don't want two rookies in that position. I mean, <laughs> this this is something that I was taught. I mean, I, I credit. Spinner McKenzie with uh, having taught me a lot about promoting particularly and th- that was you know one of the things that he drilled into me you know you you don't want two rookie guys on first because your opening match is setting your stall out for the evening mm. and you know it's it's basically your crowd's chance to get warmed up and you you always want somebody with a good amount of experience in that role uh, I mean, I, I pretty much made a career of doing opening matches because I knew what people wanted and I was I was very trusted in that role. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, no, you, you certainly don't want two rookies in that opening match because you can kill the show before it even starts. Yeah, I mean, in the in the Hamlock days, it was quite often a, um, a technical match, a blue eyes match. Quite often we had it over rounds. Um, just to kind of get people warmed into things, or if they arrived a bit late, they wouldn't have missed a, a crash bang wallop kind of match. But at the same yeah. time, it was people, you know, like your Justins and people like that who were absolutely technically sound, who you yeah. you knew could would have a solid match. As time went on, when I was booking um, RQW and One PW and things like that in the sort of the mid noughties that had evolved into um, quite often. It'd be like the multi-man cruiserweight type match, which you'd often see in WCW as well, which was just the, the, uh, the ooze, you know, the fireworks, the ooze and ours just to, um, to get people into things. Yeah. Especially if you had, um, if you had kids who, who were going to their first wrestling show, you immediately grab their attention and make them think, wow, this is amazing because they've never seen anything like it before. Oh yeah. I mean, you've got, you've got a number of different ways you can open a show, obviously, but, um, I, I always found, you know, I, my shows particularly, I, I always went with the, the formula of give them a nice solid match to begin with, you know, nothing too, nothing too spectacular, you know, you get the crowd warmed up, someone that can work the crowd, you know, strong villain, strong blue eye. Then once you've brought them up, bring them back down. And I always put, a straight wrestling match on second you know it's um, a different kind of match it's you know it takes them from being up to back down again because as you said before you know you you don't want to wear people out and that i think is missing a lot nowadays you know you yes. um you, you people don't understand the the idea of pacing a show mm. yeah, yeah um, definitely and um and one thing i also did um with we're, we're moving forward a bit again, but with <clears throat> RQW and with, with 1PW especially, um, where they wanted the main event to be the last match, I would put a comedy match on directly before the main event. 
and that's where um, Madman Manson was an absolute godsend for me in that respect, mm-hmm. um, because you just you just relax people, you let them get their breath back, conserve a bit of energy, relax, and then by the time you're ready to hype the main event up, they are refreshed and reinvigorated. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- th- there's all sorts of different ways you can do it. Obviously, I mean, sometimes. If, if you've got like a heavy match um, where a villain's going over, you might put that match on second from last, for example, and maybe send them home with the comedy match, uh, send them home happy. But I mean, there's all kinds of different ways to, to do it, depending on a lot of it, really depending on what the outcome of your matches are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or even, you know, some people just put a raffle on. Um, to come, to bring the crowd down, and that's um, you know I've I've been at wrestling shows where the the announcement of the raffle's got the biggest pop of the night. So, <laughs> well, we've had some we had some absolutely spectacular raffles. I, I do have to say, but um, I'll I'll save that for another time. And, uh, and the other thing um, in Hammerlock, and I'm sure you were aware of this, was the uh, the amount of times that um, we had a really nice first prize that. Uh, Andre's mum, who was never identified as such, <laughs> would win the raffle. Um, I seem to remember we had like this this um, colour TV that that went around about six or seven. We had we had a loop of like six or seven shows all around Kent, and this colour TV was won every night by Andre's mum, who was sat right at the back of the hall. And yeah, I just uh, I'd just be given this. Uh, this ticket by Andre in the interval, just putting my suit jacket and palm just as I drew, I draw the first number out and then she'd draw the second number out. And the second number was a legit draw and it just went from there. So, yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's change tack a little bit now because um, something I do want to get into a little bit is in July, 1995, you were the MC on a particular show in Walthamstow. Ah, yes. Which was main evented by Sabu against mm-hmm. the Dirt Bike Kid. Yes, indeed. Now, what what led you to getting that emceeing job in the first place? And what are your memories of everything to do with it? <laughs> it was a night. It was certainly a night. Um, I, um, I'm trying to think now. I J- Jason was the Dirt Bike Kid, Jason Harrison. And he, yeah. I think he befriended... Alex and I definitely remember because I used to go up to Fairfield Hall um, and see shows with Alex um, yeah back in the mid 90s and um, I think he must have like just got talking with Jason on the tube or something because I know they both lived in Islington they're both in North London so that's how they knew each other Um, and he was talking when we were walking back to East Croydon station, he was talking about, you know, he was going to get this, um, get a show on with Sabu. And, and the thing to, to bear in mind was in 1995, Sabu was the hottest independent commodity in oh, yeah. worldwide Ab- wrestling. Absolutely. I mean, I, I speak as someone that was there as a punter and yeah, absolutely. I was, I was excited out of my mind to see Sabu, you know, wrestle in the UK at that point. Yeah. And um, and so he he didn't want the usual suspects, the old guard as such, because this was a, a, a show that was appealing to a different type of fan, a different generation of fan. So he wanted pe- you know, new people in there. 
Um, and so I think through talking with with Alex, he um, he he persuaded him to to use um, Hammerlock for not all but some of the um, of the show. And um, he, I know he didn't use our ring. He used this twenty by twenty ring that was absolutely fucking massive. You basically yeah. need, need some step lads to get into. That's right. And so um, yeah, I think it was that that guy Big T who was like Mr. T gimmick with the mohawk. I think yeah. it was his. It was his ring. So he booked some of his boys on it as well. And um, one of my favourite memories was Jackie Palo Jr., who was in, yes. must have been in his fifties at the time, being one of the most over people there. It was just such <laughs> a lesson in how you know a good pro can get himself over with any crowd at all. Um, and I, I witnessed a similar thing years later with James Mason being booked on a Dragon Gate UK show and becoming one of the most over stars of the show. But um, yeah, I just I just remember um, I just remember. Jason calling me up and offering me the gig as as MC because I was a Hammerlock MC and and Alex had got the referee job because he wasn't um, experienced enough as a wrestler at that point. I, I do remember Jason wasn't the easiest person to work for, should we say? Um, yeah, I, I have heard that from a, a number of people. I mean, I remember like him phoning me up once and I was out. And then he phoned me up the next day and he's like, why, why weren't you in? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to wait around in case you phone me, mate. I've got a life to live, you know. But he was my first ever paid wrestling job. Um, ah. Because I'm sure we'll get onto this later, but nobody really was far as like from the first few years, at least. I don't know how it went after that, but nobody got paid at Hamlock. The shows were, you you did the shows for, for experience and exposure, but I'll, I'll come back to that if we may. Well, um, I, I do have to say that in his defence, Andre did once buy me a burger. <laughs> Fair enough then. But um, so um, yeah, and I remember meeting Sabu, and I was a little bit nervous, but he he wasn't the uh, he was very matter of fact, and he just didn't really want to talk to anyone. He wasn't a very sociable animal, should we say? He um he had a guy Judge Dread with him, who was like six foot eight, four hundred pounds, and he was lovely. He was like a really nice guy. He was like his traveling companion, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, the match um there wasn't a ring bell for some reason, um, and they didn't get a proper they didn't get a gimmick table. They like the the wrestling tables that we all know. And so um, Sabu was trying to um, was trying to leg drop Jason through like a, a wooden school table that obviously yes. wouldn't break. I, I vaguely remember that now. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I remember he um, I think he he chipped a bit of his coccyx or something like that, or he broke he broke some he like had a fracture or some you know hairline fracture of a bone. So when I released because I also um, because I was tape trading at the time as well. I and, and you know this was before YouTube, before the internet, and before you had like proper tape trading businesses. Really. Oh yeah, I, absolutely. I um I got the um the okay from Jason to record and then distribute the show, sell the show on. So yeah, that kind of was part formed part of my wages as such as well. So I named the show Sabu's European Break because yeah. he. He broke a bone. The, the show itself didn't have a name. There, this was a, wasn't a time that shows were given names, really. No. Um, so that's what I remember. I always remember um, Eric Isaacson 
in the crowd who's someone who got tapes off me from Norway and he then was over here studying and he became a professional wrestler. He went on to found his own promotion in Norway. I actually managed him for a bit in WAW as well. But um, so, yeah, that was that was that experience. It was a really, you know, it was a really hot crowd. I think um, I think Jody Fleisch was in the crowd as well for that. But um, it, it was it was a really intense kind of experience and I, I remember as well i held a, a fan convention a charity fan convention the next day yes um, and that that is something i want to get into actually because i've got a listener question specifically about that okay um it's from paul dougie douglas oh yes i know paul um, Douglas. From the and, yeah yes and yeah his his question uh, he was there at that ca- uh, fan convention. Now, okay. I, I can only assume that either I didn't know about the convention until very late on for some reason, or there must have been some other reason that I, I couldn't go, because that's that's the sort of thing at that time I would be, you know, right right into. That would be yeah. right up my alleyway. I mean, at that time, the, uh, the, the, the hardcore fan base, if you like, was... Um, was kind of like being in a secret society. Yeah. You know, you, you had that um, that tape trading kind of little ring. And you, I mean, finding in the mid 90s, finding any other wrestling fan at all was was pretty hard. But um, to find someone else who liked ECW, like Japanese wrestling, like Mexican wrestling was was pretty much impossible. You know, so being around other people like that was amazing at that time. Um, and I, I can only assume, like I say, that I there was either some reason I couldn't go, or maybe I, did, I just didn't know about it until late on. Um, so, yeah, Paul just just wants to know, you know, your your thoughts on on putting together that convention. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, it, I remember it was it was for charity. And I think it was because my my um, my mum at the time, I mean, she, I think it's still going, although she doesn't really do much for it now, but my mum at the time, she ran um, uh, a charity for our local hospital's premature baby unit, because that's where I was born. Um, oh, okay. I was born like a, I think it was born about a month and a half prematurely, and I, I, it was very much, I mean, which, and I was like three pounds one ounce, which at that time was, was like virtually unheard of. Um, and it was very much touch and go if I'd, I'd live and, and obviously I did, but, um, so she was always very grateful for that. And so over the years, my mum has raised thousands and thousands for this, this hospital's premature baby unit to buy them various, you know, it, it, incubators and ventilators and stuff. And I've got, a have got a feeling we, that we did it for, we did it for that because, um, doing it for a charity opened up an awful lot of, of doors that would probably normally be shut. So um, yeah. we got a, a room in the hotel for free, which was actually, it was a ho- there was um, John Lister's um, flatmate at university, um, a guy called Matt Brannigan. His, his dad ran the hotel or was the manager of the hotel. So we were able to get the hotel in London f- through him. Um, and I got, um, I was given the name of someone um, in the WWF to write to at Titan Tower, and um, I corresponded with him, and they sent me a load of um, a load of merchandise. Like I seem the the one thing that sticks out in my head was uh, was Bushwhacker Happy Birthday cards, um, <laughs> but um, there were other things as well. And we basically like did a huge raffle for that with all the prizes on the table in the back. 
Um, and I, I mean, I was, I think, yes, I'm, I'm just trying to piece the timeline in my head together. This was 95, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, July 95. Yeah. So basically in, I, I did my A-levels in the summer of 94 and then I, I took a gap year, um, not to go traveling, but basically I was, I was working in my mum's business in her, her shoe shop. Um, and just saving up money because um, we we've yeah we were never, we were we're not certainly weren't people with a, a lot of money to spare and two pennies to rub together. So basically, my mum had said, so long as I put a certain amount of money aside every week from my wages, she wouldn't charge me any um, housekeeping, as parents always call it, because they never want to charge you rent, do they? Yeah. Um, and basically, I seem I seem to remember that over the course of this year, I managed to save three thousand pounds, which like twenty odd twenty five years ago is a lot an awful lot more than, than it is now. Yeah. Um, but it also meant that during the rest of the time, I was bored shitless because all my friends had gone to university or had started jobs or whatever. So, um, so I had a lot of spare time, and I think it's something I just dreamt up whilst bored in the shop one day, and it went it just it just snowballed from there. And I'd been to um. I'd been to a convention in 93 run by um, a, a girl called Tony Sutton, who I became very good friends with. Um, that's where I first met John Lister and Johnny Storm, as he be, as would then be known. Um, and, um, yeah, I just got the idea from from there, really. And um, I, I can't remember what we raised, but I know we, we raised a, a, a really good sum of money for the charity. Um, Sabu turned up for about five seconds. Someone called him Terry, and he... Uh, he then went off in a half um, and I worked with him about 20 odd years later and he was still just as much of a prick then. So. <laughs> uh, we've, um, we've already mentioned Hamelot Goes Hardcore briefly. Um, those who don't know about the show, it took place on the 9th of March 1996 at the aforementioned East Street Sports Centre in Sittingbourne. There was only a, a tiny venue, uh, probably capable of holding around 100 people at a squeeze. Ooh, that's, if, if that, a yeah. real squeeze. Yeah. Um, Ignoring you... all fire regulations, maybe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's wrestling. You know. <laughs> it's wrestling, yeah. Um, if you remember, um, do, do you remember what Andre's thoughts were behind putting that show on? You know, what, what did he want to achieve with it? I think that he... He was very good at at cottoning on to the latest trends, mm. not necessarily executing them in the right way, but he <laughs> cottoned on to them. So he he realised that um, that ECW was a big thing and that hardcore wrestling was a big thing or coming up to a big thing, and you know he'd have matches um, with with frying pans hanging from the ceiling and you could you know, grab the frying pan and use it on your opponent yeah and, and, and as stupid as it sounds now just the word frying pan was a oh that's what they use in ecw people would flock to it but so mm. i think i think again it's trying to do something different and trying to set himself apart from the old guard yeah um and trying to just get a a, a niche of of fans perhaps that's um that's from you know, from what I can remember, but he then he he grew weary of the the sort of the fanzine scene and the and, yeah um, even even Power Slam he did he didn't there was an article they wrote about one of our shows and, and it wasn't 
it, it was complimentary in places, but wasn't in others. And he didn't like that. Yeah, you know, he didn't. He didn't like criticism really. And he, he yeah, kind of um, got uh, you know through through his toys out the pram in that respect with 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 um, journalism, both official and unofficial. Yeah, I do, I, I do remember that from from my time there. Um, so. Not long after that hardcore show, Hammerlock ran a series of shows headlined by Adam Bomb. Yes. Who was fairly, yeah, fairly fresh off his run with the WWF. I think it had probably finished towards the end of the previous year. Yeah, that's about right, yeah. How did that contact first come about? And, you know, what are your, what are your memories of them shows? I honestly don't know or can't remember how the contact came about. Um, I know that Andre did have... Um, people he knew in america thinking about it actually there was one guy that he knew in america who is sadly no longer with us um a man called gordon scazzari yeah i remember him talking about gordon scazzari because he used to call him mr burns (laughs) i've forgotten that but um i i got on great with gordon because he he was i mean he was just an old school character and he i know that he had some kind of scam going where he'd get free phone calls no, never. because yeah because in uh, wrestling in wrestling yeah Dude, you're, you're breaking my heart here you know you're you're exposing the business here and i, I, I don't like that <laughs> because I, I just remember that this guy gordon would would call me up um in England, quite often, because I had a, when I was at university, I had a mobile phone just to do, to sort out tape trading contacts and stuff. Um, and he, yeah, so he'd call me internationally on my mobile phone for like 30 minutes, 40 minutes at a time and not bat an eyelid because apparently he didn't pay for any of these calls. I don't know how he did it or what happened. So it could very well have been through, through him. Um, and then with, with people like Jim Neidhart on, that was when Andre, um, started working for, um, a company called in New York called, uh, UCW ultimate championship wrestling. And yeah, I remember um, that with, uh, with Tommy Cairo and Tommy Cairo, others. yeah, uh, yeah, which apparently I think memory serves you right ended up being some massive money laundering scam, but let's not go into that. Um, so, um, but yeah, so, so I, I don't know how it came about, but I just remember that, um, yeah, Adam Bomb was was on these shows, and that we, I, I just, yeah, I remember going to the the gym. This was the, it was the No Limits gym at the time. I remember that, and he just walked into the gym because there's a hotel, um, there's a hotel next door, a pub in the hotel, and he was being put up there. And um, yeah, this massive guy walks in. We're all like, "Fucking hell!" Yeah, because because you haven't really you, know, you haven't really seen a, a a proper star from WWF before. Yeah, this guy's on WrestleMania the year before. Yeah. Um. But um, I don't I don't think I don't think we we drove him. No, we me and Doug drove Nightheart around, but I don't think we did with Adam Bomb. Um, he was such a nice guy. Um, he was a really nice guy. And um, I remember when WCW did Nitro in London in 2000, Mike and I arranged to meet up with him in the hotel bef- um, before or after or both, you know, before the show. Um, but, yeah, he was a fa- he was a really nice guy, um, solid enough enough worker. You know, we learned things from him on um, people learned things about, you know, presentation and, and character and just the little little things that, you, you know, would get taught in WWF. Um, 
the matches were, it was always Andre teaming up with him against, I think it was like Doug and the, the aforementioned Titans. So it was yeah. like the, the, the best worker and the biggest guy in the company who, who mm-hmm. were on the opposite side. Yeah, Andre was smart like that. So, um, yeah, and they drew, they drew good numbers. Um, we had packed houses each night. And um, I do remember, though, that the, for both both Adam Bomb and Neidhart, we, we had to take up so much space on the poster telling people that it was the real deal because this was yes. the time that tribute shows were on. Um, and I remember before, like the show before, when I was hyping it up and, I, you know, this is not a lookalike. This isn't yeah. someone pretending to be him. This is the real guy from America. Um, and you just look and hope people believed you. And obviously, yeah, those people who did come along did did know see that it was it was the real guy. Well, of course, at that time you had uh, Johnny South going around the the circuit as Legend of Doom. Yep. And, and Orig Williams doing all of his tribute shows with the yeah. Three Two One Boy and the British Bushwhacker <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I I remember that specifically. You know the amount of effort that you went to not only in the advanced publicity, but on the night to say, well, look, you know, this is the real deal. We're not false advertising. We're not bringing you tributes. We're bringing you the real thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Some, someone, um, there's a, there's a Facebook group, um, like a Hamelot memories, Hamelot. Yes. I've, I've seen and, it actually. Um, yeah. And someone put the, the poster for um, the Nightheart show up and yeah, it's a big, big bit on the bottom of that saying, saying the exact thing. Yeah. Something I've uh, discussed a few times with people over the years is just how far the Hammerlock ripple effect has reached in wrestling now. And I heard Justin talk about this actually very recently on a podcast that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people passed through Hammerlock at one time or another, and so many have gone on to sort of train and influence others since then as well. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true because, you know, again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier on that there weren't other publicly available training schools at this time. So yeah. people traveled from all over. I remember we had a guy who'd come down from Carlisle. We'd have a guy who came down from Scotland, um, Johnny Moss, who is now a trainer at the <laughs> WWE Performance Center. Yeah. He came down. I mean, I, I, was the person who got Johnny Moss started in the wrestling business because um, he used to get tapes off me and we'd have long conversations on the phone. Um, and he was talking about, you know, wanting to be a wrestler. And, and um, I told him about Hamelot simply because it was the only place that I knew about. Um, yeah. It was the only place anyone knew about. And he came down for a week long summer camp and he ended up actually moving to Kent for a good few years, I think. Um, and obviously, yeah, he's, he's gone, he's gone great, done great things. And, um, you know, he, I think he's accomplished more as a trainer than he probably ever did as a, as a wrestler. It's one of those things that, you know, the best pupils don't always make the best teachers and vice versa. But, um, I think I'm right in saying after I'd left that I think Stu Bennett went, went to Hamlock for a bit. Okay. Um, obviously you've got Fergal Devitt, Finn Balor. Yeah. Um, Jordan Devlin was then a trainee of, of Fergal's, um, in NWA Island. Um, so you, yeah, you, you had as quite rightly this ripple effect because then 
you had Justin getting his start in, in Hammerlock and then training people in Hammerlock and then going on to train other people himself, like, yeah. um, you know, you got Rhea O'Reilly, Aisha Raymond, Freddie Mercurio over in Canada now, um, lots of lots of other people who, who whose mem- I can't remember off the very top of my head. All the people that Alex brought out of the of FWA London, like RJ Singh and Sticks and Hayd Vanson and people like that. Um, yeah, it's it is a, a huge it is a huge ripple, and there is this whole generation of people who came into this business through Hammerlock. Well, it's it's funny that you mention Johnny Moss there, and it's it's equally funny that you mention Johnny Moss getting tapes off you because. I remember specifically Johnny Moss sending a tape of his own to Hamlock. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention this, but yes. So <laughs> basically, Johnny um, set up a video camera, and there was it was some somewhere in the woods in Cumbria, um, and there was this area of woodland that had four trees in roughly a square shape around them. So you could basically they tied ropes around the trees to make a kind of a makeshift ring and put some tarpaulin down on the on the floor and um they were trying to um put on uh, him and his mate were trying to put on a match to uh to send to um to andre and um johnny um at the time was a lot smaller than he is these days and he was very much uh, an aerialist and um he did um i think he threw his mate out of the the makeshift ring and then did uh an acai moonsault which given that he got ropes loosely tied around a, a tree was very impressive and he hit this fantastic acai moonsault um but because the camera is on a still it's a hard cam on a tripod he um he connected with the move and then just immediately past where his mate was there was a ditch and um you just see johnny moss disappear down this ditch <laughs> and then a few seconds later you can just see these two hands at the top of the ditch as he pulls himself up <laughs> and andre could not stop laughing at this and literally everyone <laughs> who came into his house the first thing you had to do was watch the tape of Johnny Moss's, as he called it, ended up being known as the Ditch Salt. The Ditch Salt, yeah. And I, I, I genuinely think that that is the reason that Johnny Moss got booked originally on on <laughs> Hammerlock shows because Andre loved that. What I will say as, as a as a positive to counterbalance all of that, I remember Johnny Moss's first ever match was at the Margate Winter Gardens in what they called a super fight, which was like a, a gauntlet match. Yes. Um, so, you know, it was like, you know, 10, 12, 20 people, however many it was, winner stays on. Yeah. So you could have some proper matches with people, but also you could have, you know, a quick two or three minute match with someone new just to give them a bit of exposure, which is exactly what Johnny had. And, and I remember... Um, and sorry to interrupt, that's also exactly what my first match was. Um, that was part of those winner stays on super fights and it was a quick three minute match because i was new with uh alex right okay well this was this was a quick match with um with gary Steele, and uh who you know went on to become briefly nwa world heavyweight champion um and i just remember watching johnny and to this day he 
is the most naturally gifted wrestler I've ever seen. I've never seen someone have a better first ever match than Johnny Moss to this day. Yeah, he was one of those really exceptional wrestlers that came out of Hammerlock. We can talk about all the the exceptional guys, you know, the top guys that came out of Hammerlock. Um, was there anybody that you remember seeing who had all the potential in the world, maybe, but it didn't quite translate once they got to shows? Or anyone that that maybe had had a, a reasonable career, but really should have had more of a career based on the talent that they had? I, I remember there was a guy that was a martial artist called Lee Remedios, and he really looked the, the, the deal. He was a legit martial artist, and he did a couple of shows and then vanished. And I, I think he went on to carry on in, 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 I don't know what martial arts it was, but if I'm sure I looked his name up once and, and saw him um, and saw that he was doing very well for himself. I mean, the the one that never realised his true potential, I think, was um, was Titan, um, Joe. And that was because he, um, I think he, he either got a bit bored with it or got himself into legal problems. Um, but he was, I mean, he idolised Vader and he very much styled himself on Vader. Um, and he was a good six foot five, six foot six, 20 stone plus, legit hard as nails, lived in yeah. a really dodgy part of Brixton. Um, I remember him coming, and I, I got on very well with him. He didn't get on with many people, but he got on with me for some reason. And um, I remember him coming coming into the training school once with um, cuts all over his hands, over his knuckles. And I asked him what he'd done. And apparently, I think he um, he was either on the train home or he was walking home from the train station. And two guys tried to, like, grab his bag and mug him. And he basically <laughs> just beat the shit out of these two people. And and the cuts of that on his hand were, like, where his fist had hit their teeth, basically. <laughs> and then someone else that he didn't like asked him what he was doing, what he, how he'd done that. And he goes, playing golf. And they went, what? Playing golf? He goes, yeah, it's a fucking dangerous game. And they just <laughs> crept off, crept away from him. But um, I think, I mean, we had we had a couple of female wrestlers, Tansy and Amanda. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there, it, it was a time where there just weren't any other female wrestlers around. So they could only really work with each other or work in mixed tags. Yeah. Um, and it was a lot of comedic stuff. And so you never really knew how good they could be because, you know, if they were around now, it'd be a completely different, um, completely different scenario, really. Um, but the the others that I thought were great, the Macmillan brothers, Tony and Dave, and I thought yeah. especially, especially Dave, because Tony carried on um, wrestling for a bit and he tried, him and Dean Champion tried to revive Hammerlock for a little bit. Um, they even got Adam Pearce coming over to defend the um, NWA World Heavyweight title against Danny Garnell. Um, but I I thought they were they were good, but especially Dave. Dave had a real sort of aerial flair to him. Um, and I, I, I always think it's a shame that they didn't go further. That was part one of my interview with the twisted genius, Dean Ayers. Dean and I go way back and we ended up talking for so long that I've needed to split the interview into two parts. We still have plenty to get into with Dean on the second part of this interview, which will be coming up next week. 
We talk about his experiences with Jim the Anvil Neidhart, the Hammerlock summer training camps, Dean's first ever wrestling match, incidents with fans trying to get in the ring, Power Slam magazine's coverage of British wrestling, the wrestling depression of the mid-90s, travelling with various people at Hammerlock, Hammerlock venues and the differences in the audiences, false teeth, the legacy of Hammerlock wrestling. And in that second part we'll also hear Dean's own contribution to our regular quote of the week section as he talks about the ladder match that never was. All of this and much much more in the second part of this interview next week. And speaking of quote of the week, you won't believe this. It's now time for... Quote of the Week! I say! Yes, it's Quote of the Week. And this episode's Quote of the Week is... Honey, the guy from the Blind Association is here to see you. Now, I realise, looking at the phrasing here, that that would probably have been bad enough on its own with telling me that a blind man was there to see me. Where do I start with this one? Basically, sometime in 2006, uh, contact was made with an organisation called the Grampian Society for the Blind. I can't remember exactly how that contact came about, but to cut a long story short, they wanted us to put on a fundraising show for them, which we were happy to do. We'd been talking via email with Neil, the contact at the society, with the aid of his wife who was physically doing the typing and communicating back and forth for Neil, as Neil himself was blind. After a few conversations, Neil expressed an interest in coming along to a show to have a chat in person, which we duly arranged, and he came along to one of our shows in Forfa. In the midst of the usual chaos of organising and running a wrestling show, I'd forgotten that Neil was coming on that particular night, which is an important detail to this story, because it makes me sound slightly less horrible a person than you would think I was if you didn't know that detail. The main event of that show featured my Team England tag team partner Justin Richards, who was wrestling one of the top local Blue Eyes in the promotion. I can't actually give his name here because he's asked not to be mentioned by name on this podcast, because of the job he currently holds, which is fair enough. And I did promise that I wouldn't. Bobby, I said, I promise I won't mention your name or indeed any other members of the Duval family on the podcast. Alright, that isn't actually his real name, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll leave that there. I'm sure the real Bobby Duval is someone I'll end up talking about at some point on this show. Anyway... Justin and his opponent had also wrestled each other on the previous show in Forfa, a few months prior to that, and Justin had won that match through somewhat dubious means. This then led to a challenge where his opponent said that in a fair match, with no interference or cheating, he would have been able to beat Justin with one arm tied behind his back. And that ended up then being the stipulation that was agreed to for the return match with both wrestlers having one arm tied behind their backs to make things even. A problem arose, however, on the day of the show. And I know what you're thinking. A problem on the day of a show? No. Anyway, 
Justin's shoulder had been giving him problems for a little while at that point, and he subsequently found out that he actually had a frozen shoulder. And this meant that having the arm tied behind the back would be too uncomfortable to work with. So between us we sat down and tried to come up with an alternative stipulation for the match. We went through a few different options and decided against them, before eventually settling on a blindfold match. Yeah. We went through and had the show, which wasn't Wilde's best ever effort, to be honest. We ended up running a little bit over time as well, which wasn't helped by John Short droning on and on and on during the raffle, which was just before the main event. I can't remember exactly what he was taking so much time over or talking about for so long, but he ended up stringing the raffle out for so long that when he finally came to a pause in his speech, I ended up shouting, Get on with it, you old git! from behind the curtain, which finally prompted him, aided by the laughter of the punters, to get a move on. The two wrestlers then came out for the main event and had their blindfold matches planned. After the show had finished, I was busy tidying things up behind one of the doors to the hall when my girlfriend at the time, and now wife, Tracy, walked in and said, Honey, the guy from the Blind Association's here to see you. The enormity of the situation just hit me, and I realised that I had just presented a show with a blindfold match as the main event to a man who was blind, along with his carer, stroke wife, who had made a special effort to come down and see me at said show. Apparently, my face was an absolute picture, although thankfully Neil wasn't able to see that. I thought they were both going to be absolutely furious, but I, I did explain the situation to Neil, and to be fair to him, he took it in quite good humour. We eventually ended up running the fundraising show in Inverurie, near Aberdeen, in March of the following year, which was an experience all of itself, situated as it was in the middle of a fucking cattle market, and the opening match having to run for about 45 minutes to allow the Glasgow crew more time to get there as they were running late. Happy days. No matter how bad my faux pas at the 4 far show had been though, it pales in comparison to a show I first heard about years ago and have subsequently seen on video since. Eli Collins, otherwise known as Mad Eli, is a character who I'm sure I'll mention a few times as we go forward on this show, and I'll save a full biography of Eli for some time in the future. Eli promoted some wrestling shows in the West Country, but also ran a video club where he sold not only videos of his own shows, but other wrestling footage as well. On this one particular occasion, a show was being held in memorial for a member of Eli's video club who had just died. At the show, there was a tribute to the guy with various members of his family sitting at ringside. Lovely but for one small detail. The main event of the show, yes, you guessed it, was a fucking casket match. You honestly couldn't make this stuff up if you tried. Having said that, this was the same Mad Eli who also organised a coach trip years ago from his hometown of Bath to see the Bullring in Birmingham. A full coach load of people turned out for this escapade, 
although quite what they thought when they turned up at this run-down, dilapidated shopping centre in Birmingham, when they'd instead been promised matadors and bullfighting, is frankly anybody's guess. Wrestling, eh? You gotta love it. So, without further ado, it's now time for... Song of the Week! Yes, it's Song of the Week! I still haven't managed to find out who it was that said to always finish on a song. If you know, however, please do send your answers on a postcard to... Is it Shane Ritchie? P.O. Box 6969 Birmingham and we'll pick one lucky winner for an exclusive day out at the new and improved bullring which still doesn't contain any fucking matadors or bullfighting. Because of how much Dean and I talked about Andre Baker and Hammerlock this week coupled with the fact that we were recording the interview without even realising the day before the 10th anniversary of Andre's passing I feel it's only appropriate to make this week's Song of the Week a version of Andre's entrance music, which was Crazy Crazy Nights by Kiss. This is a slower cover version of the song, which I actually used on the tribute video I made for Andre shortly after his passing. And I'll put up a link on both the Facebook and Twitter pages to that video so you can have a look at the man we've been talking about so much. So without further ado, here is this week's Song of the Week. These are crazy, 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 crazy nights. Yeah. These are crazy, 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 crazy. People try to take my soul away But I don't hear the rap that they all say They try to tell us we don't belong That's alright, we're millions strong This is my music it makes me proud This is my people These are my crowd These are crazy, 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 crazy nights These are crazy, 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 crazy nights Sometimes they it's so hard to survive A million ways to bury you alive The sun goes down like a bad, bad dream You wound up tight, got a let off steam They say they can break you again and again Life is a radio, turn it up to ten. These are crazy, 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 
this week thank you all very very much again for listening and thank you also to my amazing guest Dean Ayas and as I mentioned you'll hear the second part of his exclusive interview next week including his fantastic contribution to quote of the week you really won't want to miss that one if you've enjoyed this episode please do spread the good word and continue to help us grow by sharing and recommending us to others. You can find all the necessary information on our Facebook and Twitter pages, and we will be posting updates there as to when the next of our absolutely fabulous guests will be joining us. Please also do keep sending us your feedback, both good and bad, so we can hopefully learn and, again, keep on growing this podcast. So, until next time, this is Carl Stewart signing off and saying goodbye and thank you.